Radio Buddhist Youth Association. Good afternoon, everybody. You are listening to the sound of Universal Compassion. Today is the 20th of November. We will continue listening to Tenton Chosen's previous program with the book Way of Life by Shanti Davies. And please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and welcome to the program. I hope your week has gone well. We're talking about the text Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by the great Indian Buddhist master Shantideva. And last week we went through what he meant in the verse, Leisure and endowment are very hard to find, and since they accomplish what is meaningful for man, if I do not take advantage of them now, how will such a perfect opportunity come about again? Basically, this is telling us that to be born as a human with all the conditions to be able to practice the Buddhist teachings is very rare. And from a Buddhist perspective, the only thing that will finally free us from our suffering and bring us complete happiness is the path to enlightenment taught by the Buddhas. So now, as we have all the necessary conditions, we should take advantage of them and practice as well as we can, for we cannot be sure that we will find such an opportunity again for a very long time. We have so many various karmas on our mind stream that we cannot say for certain what will arise at death time to throw us into our next life. And if we're born into a lower realm, the animal preta or hell realms, it could take us eons to once again be born human. Even then, it's not likely that we will come across the Buddha's teachings. And even if we do, we may not have the conditions or the will to practice well. So to be born as a human with the right conditions and a strong will to practice is more rare than winning lotto. Now let's move on further into Shantideva's text. But before we do that, take a moment to think about motivation for being part of this program. As I explained in the last program, let's make our motivation as vast as possible so that this program becomes much more than just something to pass the time by. The motivation to gain enlightenment so we can best benefit all other beings in whatever way they need, but especially to lead them to enlightenment, is the most vast possible. So let's set that as our motivation. But if that is too much for you, at least set a motivation to free yourself from suffering and attain long-lasting happiness. Thank you. Now in his text, Shantideva continues with describing the benefits of bodhicitta, the mind to attain enlightenment to benefit all beings. The next three verses read like this. Just as a flash of lightning on a dark cloudy night for an instant brightly illuminates all, likewise in this world, through the might of Buddha, a wholesome thought rarely and briefly appears. Hence virtue is perpetually feeble, the great strength of evil being extremely intense, 
and except for a fully awakening mind, by what other virtue will it be overcome? All the Buddhas who have contemplated for many eons have seen it to be beneficial, for by it the limitless masses of beings will quickly attain the supreme state of bliss. Now cast your mind back for a moment to the basic motivation for your actions. What is it? For most of us, it is to gain some happiness for ourselves and to free ourselves from real or perceived suffering. Isn't that so? We're constantly on the lookout for pleasure or gratification in one form or another. And we're always on guard against threat or pain unless we see some benefit for ourselves. Go on, tell me, where is the center of your universe? Isn't it true that for each of us the center of the universe is me? All our experiences, all our knowledge is related back to me. And if outside forces and things are soothing to me, the universe is a happy place. But if things seem to go against me, the universe is terrible. We grasp at this me as if it's real and has its own characteristics, independent of anything else. It seems to be quite different from and independent of all the other me's out there. And if I had to say what is most important in the whole universe, usually it is this me. Now when we grasp at this me in this way, whatever pleases the me makes us happy. And so the me wants to cling on to it and own it. And whatever seems to go against the me makes the me angry or miserable and needs discarding. Thus we live our lives in a constant state of pulling some things and people towards us and pushing others away. We live in a state of constant emotional turmoil that creates habitual patterns on our minds which we come to follow blindly, not analyzing whether they will bring us long-term happiness or not. Most often, they do not. Only very occasionally do we act out of pure altruism, an altruism that wants absolutely nothing in return, but is content to see the happiness of others. This is what Shantideva is alluding to in verse 5, the first of the three verses I read. In the same way that in a dark, stormy night, where it's difficult to see anything at all, very occasionally a flash of lightning makes everything visible, a virtuous thought based on pure altruism arises very rarely in our mostly self-centered minds. Because our self-grasping and self-cherishing are so strong, almost all our actions are selfishly motivated and lead back to the turmoil we spoke of before. That turmoil ensures that we can never find any long-lasting peace or happiness, but will always return to dissatisfaction or misery. So when he talks about the great and overwhelming strength of evil, Shantideva refers to the results of the afflictive emotions, the attachment, aversion and so on, and the karma based on our self-centeredness. This is what determines the form of our ongoing unhappiness. Standing against this is the most rare altruistic intention, which often doesn't even go much beyond the point that would cause discomfort to the me. So that altruistic intention is brief, transient and utterly frail. Bodhicitta, of course, is the mind focused on others. Ultimately, the bodhicitta intention has not even the slightest concern for self, but is totally concerned for the welfare of others. It is in direct opposition to our normal self-grasping and self-cherishing attitudes. 
So Shantideva says, apart from this mind, it is difficult to find anything that can stand against our habitual self-centeredness and its torturous results. However, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that although bodhicitta is one of the primary causes to reach full Buddhahood, it occurs very rarely, even though the Buddha has actualized it and has taught us how to achieve it. To attain Buddhahood, we also have to understand that we can actually be liberated from our suffering. In other words, we must be convinced that we can experientially know the nature of reality or emptiness. To really make the situation clear to our own minds, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says we should think about how we distort reality. He quotes four ways in which we do this and cause ourselves suffering. The first is thinking that what is impermanent is actually permanent. The second is seeing what is impure as pure, then grasping at the unpleasant as if it was pleasant, and finally we think that everything that is selfless actually has a self, some kind of independent inherent existence. Grasping at reality in this way, we create actions that directly lead to dukkha, loosely described in English as suffering, but perhaps more in the sense of stress, unease, dissatisfaction. Bodhicitta helps to weaken and dispel the self-grasping and cherishing that lies at the heart of these distortions. But again, as His Holiness points out, it is not easy to develop bodhicitta. First, we have to build great compassion for all beings. At the moment, most of us have a biased mind. We readily feel compassion for those dear to us, but when we hear that someone we don't really like suffers a misfortune, we have no compassion at all and may even feel glad. With this kind of biased attitude, we will never reach Buddhahood. It is impossible, because as you know, the Buddha's compassion does not discriminate between beings. To develop bodhicitta, we have to first develop the mind of equanimity, seeing how fruitless it is to slot beings into the categories friend, enemy or stranger, which we do, usually according to how they treat us. If a being is helpful to us, we develop friendship towards it. But if we think our being is harmful, we become antagonistic, or at least want to escape from it. If we think a being is neither beneficial nor harmful, we tend to ignore it. This is easily seen in our relationships with people. We can all think of people we are close to, people we don't care about, and the majority of others we just generally don't take much notice of. But we do it with the other creatures that share the earth with us as well. We're very partial to cats and dogs and are always ready to pat or stroke them, even if we don't own them. However, bring a cockroach or blowfly within spitting distance and we shudder and reach for the insect spray without even thinking. Most of us probably don't pay much attention if a sparrow lands on a tree in our garden. Our instinctual reaction, reinforced by our conditioning, is to see all beings in one of, one of these three ways. The cat and the dog way, the cockroach way, or the sparrow way. But if we analyze whether this behavior is helpful to us or not, it becomes apparent that it's actually quite harmful. Take the cat and dog situation for instance. So we get a cat or a dog as a pet. Then as soon as the animals start scratching, we think fleas and rush off to the shops to buy some concoction to kill fleas. What we're actually doing is killing a host of beings for the sake of our attachment to one being. In other words, 
Through our attachment, we allow ourselves to collect a whole lot of negative karma of killing that will eventually result in us experiencing a lot of suffering. It's easy to see how we create the same kind of karma for anything we don't like. We may happily kill a white-tailed spider lurking in our bathroom, for instance, just because it might bite us. So basically, this friend-enemy-stranger attitude inevitably leads us to create negative karma and experience suffering. We have to change this attitude so that we see all beings equally. The cat, the cockroach, the flea and the sparrow all want happiness just like we do and don't want suffering just like we don't. We have to recognize this and train our mind to see them and all other beings equally deserving of happiness and being free from suffering. In fact, if we broaden our outlook, we will see that all beings have been incredibly kind to us. As Buddhists, we believe that we have had countless lives. And when the Buddha looked back at all his lives, he said he couldn't see the first one. So we've had infinite lives, and in many of those lives, we've had a mother. Not all the mothers have been the same. So in countless lives, we've had countless mothers. That being so, I cannot now point to any being and say it's never been my mother, possibly many times. Every being has been as kind to me as my mother of this life, the only difference being a matter of time. So why should I discriminate between beings who have all been so extremely kind to me? Furthermore, I cannot do without all these countless other beings. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama points out, we are completely dependent on other beings. Just to get this precious human rebirth, we must have created strong positive actions and refrained from negativities. We couldn't have done that without other beings. For instance, having good resources in this life comes from being generous in a previous life. To be generous, you must have other beings to give to. Otherwise, how could you be generous? So the cause for our resources depends on other beings. But even in this life, we cannot experience one single enjoyment without it involving other beings. The food you eat was planted, grown and harvested by others. It was processed and packaged by others, made available in shops by others, and served to you by others. Without the effort and sacrifices of others, we would not be able to experience any enjoyments in this life at all. In fact, we would find it very difficult to live. Imagine if you were the only living being on earth, no other animals, insects, fish, birds or humans. I think life would be very difficult, even if you had enough to eat and drink. So just in an ordinary sense, beings have been very helpful to us. Furthermore, our desire for liberation would be impossible to achieve if we didn't have others. To become an arhat, you have to practice morality. But how can you do that without others? How can you practice refraining from killing if there are no others to kill? Or refrain from stealing if no other beings existed? You couldn't even have sex, never mind refrain from sexual misconduct if you were the only being on the planet. And so on. So, for us to obtain liberation, other beings are indispensable. Similarly, we need others to achieve Buddhahood, which depends on infinite love and compassion, desiring all beings to be free from suffering. No matter how we look at it, others are vital to our well-being and are therefore so kind to us. Seeing this, 
how can we not develop a sense of strong affection for them? To develop bodhicitta, we must cultivate great compassion, a compassion focused not only on those closest to us, but on all beings everywhere. We have to see how they suffer, and I don't mean here just how they suffer sickness, broken limbs, loss of what they want, not getting what they do want, aging, death, and so on. That is what we all recognize as suffering. Nor do I mean the suffering of change, which we described in the first program in this series, the suffering that our pleasures turn into when we indulge in them continuously. We have to understand how all beings are caught up in all pervasive suffering, which, if you remember, is the result of our taking on this type of body and mind under the influence of karma and afflictive emotions. With this type of existence, we will never find any long-term happiness because the very cause of this existence is polluted by karma and afflictive emotions. Therefore, the very nature of our existence is suffering. To develop great compassion, we have to see that all beings are desperate to experience happiness and contentment, but are prevented by the very nature of their existence. They are, as it were, condemned to endless dissatisfaction and misery, like living in a torture chamber with no exit. Furthermore, we see that the torture chamber has actually been built and is maintained by the very beings who are being tortured. And if they could only see it, they have the power to destroy it. But not realizing this, they continue to experience suffering and misery of all kinds. Imagine being totally free from suffering yourself and seeing beings wherever you look caught up in this kind of situation. Would you not develop an intense wish for them to stop creating the causes for their own misery and to free themselves from the pain? His Holiness says that unless we understand that we ourselves are imprisoned in a torture chamber and continually experience dissatisfaction and misery, we will not see the real suffering of others, and so it will not be possible to develop great compassion or bodhicitta. We have to fully understand our own suffering and develop renunciation. First, to eliminate attachment to this life, we meditate again and again on how precious human rebirth is, and we shouldn't waste it on trivial pursuits that only increase our attachment for it. And then, to eliminate attachment to coming lives, we meditate on the various sufferings of cyclic existence and the law of cause and effect. Considering all this, you can see that developing bodhicitta, the determination to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings, is no easy thing and could take a very long time. The Indian master Nagarjuna wrote that bodhicitta has to be generated on the basis of recognizing four infinitely great things, the infinite number of sentient beings and so infinite compassion that is needed, the infinite qualities of a Buddha and the infinite number of eons we have to be prepared to work and the infinite number of practices one who wishes to be a bodhisattva undertakes. However, even a small action done with a bodhicitta motivation brings a very great positive potential or merit. Also, with bodhicitta, the sense of satisfaction is continuous and suffering is minimized. So, as the great master Atisha said, even if it takes eons, developing bodhicitta is a very worthwhile thing to do. And this is why the last of the three verses says, 
All the Buddhas who have contemplated for many eons have seen it to be beneficial. For by it, the limitless masses of beings will quickly attain the supreme state of bliss. If we can develop bodhicitta and fulfill our wish, we will be able to point countless beings in the direction of destroying the torture chamber and achieving long-lasting happiness. Pema Chodron illuminates another facet of these teachings. She points out that even though we may recognize the neurosis and misconceptions that keep us barred up in our cage of self-grasping misery, we often think it is too hard to get out. We think we are too weak and not giving in to our neurosis and addictions is too painful. The problem, she says, is that we think those neurosis and addictions are permanently part of us. We say, that's just the way I am. For instance, I know one person who sees everything through a veil of poor me, everyone else is to blame. He's so fixated on this attitude that even though I may explain to him again and again that it's a mental fabrication, that the reality is quite different, he turns even my words into a poor me, how nasty others are story. For some reason to do with validating himself, he's convinced that the cause of his suffering is the misdeeds of others, and nothing will convince him otherwise. Not even the Buddhist teaching that all our suffering comes from our own actions and the way we interpret and react to reality. Of course, he doesn't even realize that he doesn't need validating. But we all have these closed-minded, mistaken ways of viewing and acting towards reality, which children calls our neuroses. Instead of recognizing them for what they are, just passing states brought on by insecurity and conditioning, we clutch onto them as though they are a lifeline. These are the clouds in the stormy night, and the flash of lightning is the mind focused away from self that from time to time appears in our psychological darkness and gives the sense of what she calls potential and possibility. These occasional flashes inspire us to investigate the path further and suggest we give up our habitual but dysfunctional self-centered ways that cause so much stress. These flashes give us the opportunity to develop the outrageous courage of the mind that only wants to be of benefit to others. Here's the passage from Pema Chodron's book, No Time to Lose, where she explains what she means. When we get hit hard, we look outwards and see how other people also have difficult times. When we feel lonely or angry or depressed, we let those dark moods link us with the sorrows of others. We share the same reactivity, the same grasping and resisting. By aspiring for all beings to be free of their suffering, we free ourselves from our own cocoons and life becomes bigger than me. No matter how dark and gloomy or joyful and uplifted our lives are, we can cultivate a sense of shared humanity. This expands our whole perspective. Trungpa Yerimpeshe used to say, the essence of the Mahayana is to think bigger. Shantideva's teachings, Pema Chodron says, are a guide to compassionate living and bigger thinking. And so we go on to the next verse in Shantideva's text. It reads, those who wish to destroy the many sorrows of their conditioned existence, those who wish all beings to experience a multitude of joys, and those who wish to experience much happiness should never forsake the awakening mind. 
Another line, those who wish to destroy the many sorrows of their conditioned existence, harks back to what His Holiness the Dalai Lama had to say about first realizing our own suffering before we think about the sorrows of others. As Pema Chodron says, we cannot just rush off to help others thinking that our happiness doesn't count, that it doesn't matter if we're constantly stressed out or even that we loathe ourselves. It matters a great deal. And before we can possibly help others, we must first deal with our own hang-ups and neuroses. The next line, those who wish all beings to experience a multitude of joys, points to helping beings subsequent to sorting ourselves out. As Chodron writes, the shift in Mayana Buddhism is this. We want to end our personal suffering so we can help others put an end to theirs. At some point, we realize that what we do for ourselves benefits others, and what we do for others benefits us. And so Shantideva writes that those who wish to experience much happiness should never forsake the awakening mind, which has this dual intention to benefit myself to the max and to benefit others to the max. In his commentary on this verse, His Holiness the Dalai Lama points out that although happiness comes about through avoiding negative actions, the intention behind the action is very important. We can avoid killing a mosquito, for instance, because we realize killing is negative and will bring us trouble in the future, or because we have compassion and love for the mosquito. If we have bodhicitta, we automatically avoid harming the mosquito out of love and compassion, and so we never even have to think of the negative consequences of our actions. This means that not only will our minds be happy now, but in the future we will always experience much happiness. Shanti Davis' text goes on, The moment an awakening mind arises in those fettered and weak in the jail of cyclic existence, they will be named a son of the Sugatas and will be reared by both men and gods of the world. In the Three Principles of the Path, Lama Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Gelugpa branch of Tibetan Buddhism, writes, Swept by the current of the four powerful rivers, tied by the strong bonds of karma so hard to undo, caught in the iron net of self-grasping egoism, completely enveloped by the darkness of ignorance, born and reborn in boundless cyclic existence, unceasingly tormented by the three sufferings, by thinking of all mother-sentient beings in this condition, generate the supreme altruistic intention. He describes in graphic detail the awful situation we in cyclic existence are trapped in. First of all, we're swept by the current of the four powerful rivers. That is, we are without respite, swept along by birth, aging, sickness and death. Birth, aging, sickness and death, and so on interminably. We're tightly bound by our karma, which is very difficult to escape from, coming as it does from the self-grasping mind that sees things as independent. This is the net of self-grasping egoism. The darkness of ignorance refers to our grasping of things as inherently existent when they don't exist in that way at all. Because of this ignorance, which leads to the self-grasping mind, we develop afflictive emotions that in turn lead to actions that create karma. From that, we are born again and again in cyclic existence and so go through the various sufferings, like the suffering of suffering, the suffering of change and the all-pervasive suffering we talked about earlier. 
Thinking about sentient beings like this, we can see what Shantideva means when he writes about those fettered and weak in the jail of cyclic existence. And he contrasts the state with the power of one who generates bodhicitta. Such a one, he says, will become a son of the Sugatas, meaning a son of the Buddhas or a Bodhisattva, one who has an object of worship by gods and men. His Holiness points out that even if an animal generates bodhicitta, it will become such an object of worship, a bodhisattva. And Zonza Kenze Rinpoche also said that bodhicitta is not elitist. It is not limited to any one caste or state. All sentient beings have the potential to develop this mind and to begin to free themselves of their endless repetitive habitual patterns so destructive of their happiness and well-being. And now I'm going to leave you with that because we've run out of time and I have to say goodbye. Please do join us again next week when we'll see what becomes of us when we do swap our self-cherishing mind for a mind concerned only with others. Thank you and goodbye.